With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website, which is www.theorganicview.com. If you have any questions or would like to connect with us, you can simply post your question on our wall on Facebook, send us a tweet to at The Organic View, or contact me directly at June Stoyer on Twitter. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Eden Foods, one of the most trusted names in certified organic clean foods. Listeners of the Organic View Radio Show can receive 20% off any regularly priced items, excluding cases. Simply enter the coupon code ORGVIEW when prompted during checkout. That's ORGVIEW. For more special offers, please visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. When it comes to maple sugar, most people think of pancakes, baking, or even that dietary cleanse that was popular a few years back. The maple industry is actually quite complex, and believe it or not, has actually had its own share of scandals. It's also interesting that many people, especially young people, do not know what real maple syrup tastes like, much less how it's made. On today's show, Professor Douglas Wynott will talk about his best-selling book called The Sugar Season, which explores exactly how maple syrup is harvested, some of the issues that have gone on with the maple farmers, as well as one of the most famous scandals that occurred not too long ago. So I'd like to welcome to the show Professor Douglas Wynott. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. Nice to be here with you. Sir, could you please share a little bit about yourself for our listeners who are not familiar with your work? Okay. Um, I write about the work that people do uh, primarily in the Northeast, but not, not totally. I'm interested in uh, writing about nature and the environment, um, though I've also written about other topics such as wooden boat building in New England. My first book, uh, which is, is titled Following the Bloom, was about time I spent traveling around with commercial migratory beekeepers, and it was a study of the uh, beekeeping industry. My second book, uh, which is called Giant Bluefin, was a look at the bluefin tuna fishery in New England and uh, a study of the people who were doing that fishery at that time and also the, uh, the fish stocks and the controversy over uh, fishing quotas. My third book was uh, about a boatyard in Maine. I spent a year and a half uh, watching the construction of two uh, wooden sailboats uh, and uh, in a boatyard uh, that was owned by the son of E.B. White, who wrote Charlotte's Web. His name was Joel White, and I watched him design his final masterpiece. Uh, my fourth book uh, was about time that I spent at a veterinary clinic in New Hampshire, and that got into uh, the differences between a large animal practice and a small animal practice and also uh, the uh, presence of uh, increasing presence of women 
in the veterinary field. And uh, I followed uh, three veterinarians in that book, and one was a woman who had just come out of veterinary school. Her name was Erica Bruner. That's, that book is called A Country Practice. And my most recent book is a study of the maple syrup industry and the story of a, of a family that's been in the business for several generations and uh, uh, a man who is uh, uh, the largest maple syrup producer in New Hampshire and one of the largest traders of maple syrup in the world. One of the people that you wrote about in the sugar season was a gentleman named Bruce Bascom. He made a profound statement, quote, there's more to the maple industry than people realize, end quote. How did you become interested in maple farming, and what inspired you to write The Sugar Season? Um, well, that's a good quote. Uh, that, when I heard that quote, um, I, I thought that there, there probably is a book here. I first became interested in maple syrup, um, or I became more seriously interested in the maple syrup industry when my wife and I moved to New Hampshire, uh, and she went into a new career of teaching elementary school, she took her third grade class to a sugar house where they make maple syrup every spring. And um, I started going along with her to the sugar house. And then we began to visit other places, other sugar houses where they make maple syrup. It became part of a tradition for us. This is a, a big event every year where we live uh, when people begin to make maple syrup. And a lot of people do it uh, in, in various ways. But after um, a few years of doing that, in 2000. Nine, I heard about the uh, discovery of an invasive insect in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, the insect that was discovered is called the Asian longhorn beetle. It had come to the U.S. Uh, in packing crates, inside the wooden packing crates, and then gotten out into the city of Worcester and infested a lot of trees there, primarily maple trees. And after it was discovered, there was a mass um, cutting of uh, trees in Worcester and the surrounding towns. They cut down about 20,000 trees. I read about that, and I began to wonder what would happen if this insect migrated up in New Ham to New Hampshire and, and Vermont and the areas where they make maple syrup. What would happen to the maple syrup industry, I wondered, and also the, the fall foliage. Uh, the, the maple trees are so dominant here. There's such such a wonderful presence uh, in the landscape. I, I became uh, concerned about the maple tree. So um, I had heard that Bruce Bascom was a, a large maple syrup producer. I knew that he was the largest producer of maple syrup in New Hampshire. So I gave him a call. We had a, a, a phone conversation, and then we talked at his, at his place of business, and that's when he told me there's a lot more to the maple syrup industry uh, than people know about. And so I asked if I could return and uh, watch his crew go to work in the woods, tapping maple trees in the winter. And I began to have conversations with Bruce, and that led to me um, following three seasons in the maple syrup industry and doing the research for the book. The book is just a wealth of information about maple farming to just different things that most people don't even have a clue about when it comes to maple. Mm -hmm. Could you share some of the things that you learned that most people really don't have a clue about when it comes to the maple industry? I learned about the tree, more about the tree. I knew that the sap uh, ran out of the maple tree or, or could be uh, drawn from the maple tree uh, at the end of winter. But I, I didn't know to the extent of how much sap was produced and, and how much they could gather. 
and also how the tree functioned. The maple tree has air inside, it produces carbon dioxide, and in the winter, when it's freezing and thawing, as winter is moving into spring, um, ice crystals form in the cells and it pressurizes the tree on the inside. That and barometric pressure helps to move sap from the ground up through the tree's branches to the branch tips, where eventually the sap, which has a, a sugar content, uh, is used to make leaves. So um, I found out that it was possible to uh, draw quite a bit of sap from, from the maple trees. And then I, I, as I visited the, the um, Bruce Baskin's business, I realized that, uh, observed that they were using plastic tubing. Um, I had seen it around in the woods, but I, you know, in the, in, on the landscape around here in New Hampshire, but I didn't realize the extent to which they were using plastic tubing and plastic tubing that was uh, under vacuum pressure. They used, they attach vacuum pumps to the tubing. Um, at Bruce Baskin's um, uh, sugar bush, they have about 450 miles of plastic tubing in their woods, uh, and it's all under vacuum pressure. So that seemed to me to be quite an amazing thing that um, they could have so much plastic tubing running through the woods and that it would be airtight and under vacuum pressure. Not an extreme pressure, but enough to create a, a differential between the uh, inside of the tree and the air outside uh, so as to draw sap out of the tree. At Bascom's, they can collect, collect uh, as much as 80,000 gallons of sap from their maple trees every day, and that seemed to be an extraordinary amount. Could you just take a moment and explain to our listeners who are not familiar with the, the production of maple syrup, how many gallons of the sap does it take to make one gallon of syrup? Maple sap, as it comes out of the tree, has a sugar content of about 2%. And so in order to make syrup, which uh, in the end is 66 to 67% sugar, they have to boil that sap down. It takes 40 to 50 gallons uh, of sap to make a gallon of maple syrup. So they have to evaporate the sap, or they can um, also re uh, concentrate the sugar content in the sap through a machine called a reverse osmosis machine, uh, which is like a desalinization machine, except that um, in desalinization, the salt water is thrown away and the pure water is kept for drinking. Uh, in maple syrup production, that uh, high sugar content liquid is preserved and made into syrup and the pure water is discarded. So uh, a company like Bruce Bascom's uh, operation will concentrate the sap with these reverse osmosis machines, which are basically filters in which water molecules can flow through and sugar molecules are trapped. They can concentrate the, the, um, the liquid to 20% uh, sugar and then boil it. So um, they can boil down just four gallons of fluid rather than 40, the more, or 40 to 50, but the more traditional sugar makers uh, that still exist uh, sometimes boil it all the way, boil down 45, 50 gallons of sap to make a gallon of maple syrup. And for that reason, that's why the uh, maple syrup can cost so much more than the artificial uh, pancake syrup you might find in stores because of the labor that's involved in gathering sap and transporting it and because of the energy costs that are involved in evaporating uh, and uh, making the syrup itself. Now, 
it's interesting how the maple industry has gone through so many different transitions. Maple sugar at one point in American history was a staple. Can you just share a little bit about the history of the industry, how it evolved, especially as the Civil War occurred? From what I understand, maple was something that really was done strictly by the families who owned the farms. And also get into the situation in Quebec with the heist. Sure. At one time, maple syrup was was not the primary product. It was dry maple sugar. And this was a craft that was originally learned from the Indians who were practicing this for centuries. They drew sap from maple trees by by scoring the trees or opening them up and uh, draining the sap into hollow logs into which they placed hot rocks. And they boiled down the um, sap until it became a sugar. Well, the first settlers did that too. And that was, uh, in some places, such as where I live, that was the primary source of sweetener for many, many families and farms at that time. During the Civil War, the maple sugar industry reached its peak. It was um, about 10 times more uh, in production than it was during the 1960s. And um, dry sugar was the primary product. During the Civil War in, in Vermont and New Hampshire, maple sugar was connected to the abolitionist movement, and there was a slogan that went, no sugar made by slaves. Um, but after the Civil War, when the tariff was removed from white sugar and maple uh, sugar could no longer compete in the marketplace, producers began to turn to making uh, maple syrup. But maple sugar was made into the 20th century in these rural areas, and uh, Bruce Bascom talks about his, uh, his grandfather uh, and, and his family, who had a business of buying up uh, dry maple sugar from the farmers around here and then putting it on a wagon and uh, by horse and wagon transporting it to the train station uh, in Bellows Falls, Vermont, so they could go to the cities. Uh, so that dry maple sugar industry lasted into the 20th century. It's coming back now to a degree. Bruce Baskin is making a lot of dry uh, maple sugar, and he's developing a market for it. As far as the uh, Quebec industry goes, um, at this point, Quebec produces about 70 to 80 percent of the world crop of maple syrup. They they make you know they make a lot of it up there, and they have um, an agricultural union called the Federation, uh, the Quebec Federation of Maple Syrup Producers, um, that uh, organizes and sets the price for maple syrup up there. They uh, effectively set the world price because they produce so much maple syrup. They also, um, in 2002, uh, established what um, is called the uh, Global Strategic Reserve of Maple Syrup. And that means that they keep in storage a large quantity of maple syrup to be available uh, in case of shortages. Now, it's important to point out that maple syrup, maple sap flows in the trees and can be gathered during a, a, a very um, short and, and delicate, I call it delicate, time of the year called the freeze-thaw period. I mentioned that 
the trees need to, it comes at the end of winter. Well, well, during that time, the trees need to freeze at night and thaw during the day. And when the temperature is fluctuating um, back and forth like that, the sap flows in the maple trees. And as soon as it gets warm and it doesn't freeze at night, the sap uh, flow comes to, a, comes to a close. So there have been some years when uh, it's been very warm very early or winter has has lingered on and on and on, and then suddenly it's turned warm and the season was short, in which there were shortages of maple syrup. And so in that sense, it's, it's a very volatile industry. So the Quebec uh, Global Strategic Reserve uh, has been available to uh, be used uh, in the marketplace uh, when there have been shortages. And there was a severe shortage between 2005 and 2008 uh, when those winters in Canada lasted a long time and it suddenly turned warm. Um, and uh, there were um, millions of gallons of maple syrup available for uh, people like Bruce Bascom and others to fill their orders and uh, to meet their orders at uh, the various stores and, and markets that they have. So the Quebec Federation um, and its global strategic reserve is very, very important. Now, you mentioned the theft. In um, 2011, after a very uh, large crop, the Federation rented a third warehouse to store their surplus. And during that winter, some well thieves got into that warehouse and they began to take maple syrup from it. Eventually, they took a very, very large quantity, put it into the marketplace, and it's, it went into the U.S. and uh, entered the entered the markets before it was discovered in uh, July of 2011. An investigation ensued after that, and at the end of 2012, I'm sorry, at the end of 2012, more than 20 people were arrested. The uh, trials are now beginning um, for those people who stole that syrup. In the wow. Yeah. It's very interesting how many industries that have a very precious commodity have very similar circumstances that come about because of greed. I've seen it with so many different industries, whether it's the balsamic vinegar industry, even the Austrian pumpkin seed oil is going through something similar right now where mm -hmm. it's something that is purchased by consumers because of the quality and you get these folks that are just looking to dilute the industry any way that they can and just make a quick buck, and they don't realize how much exactly that's hurting the industry. In regards to the people that have really done a lot in the maple industry, one of the folks that you write about is a gentleman named Dave Marvin. Can you talk a little bit about him and why he was inducted into the Maple Hall of Fame? That's a David Marvin comes from a very interesting family. He he grew up uh, in the maple business. His father uh, was a was a botanist who taught at the uh, University of Vermont, and who also uh, specialized in uh, studying the maple sap flow. He was the founder of. Um, the Maple Research Center, the Proctor Maple Research Center at the University of Vermont. And uh, they have a sugar bush um, near the university that they use for their experiments. They're still conducting research today. 
Uh, and David Marvin grew up, and when he was a boy, he was uh, going to uh, uh, to the Sugar Bush, to the Proctor Research Center, and uh, working alongside his father and gathering sap from buckets and and uh, understanding at a very early age how the industry worked. Um, when he was in college, um, he worked at the research center, and then afterward, he just uh, he uh, conducted a study of the bulk market, so he became very familiar with that. Um, and then he uh, started his own sugar bush and started um, uh, gathering maple syrup. Uh, so he has been in the industry for a very, very long time. He was inducted into the Maple Hall of Fame because he has been so successful at it, but also supported the industry in various ways. At this time, he's about his business is about the same size as Bruce Bascom's, and and David. Um, uh, is responsible for buying and selling about half of the syrup made in Vermont. He has uh, very large markets all over the world um, and uh, is a very active person in the industry, not just for the business part of it, but also for promoting the message about pure maple syrup uh, and how it differs from artificial um, and other, other points about the industry. Earlier you mentioned how important the weather, the temperature is to the production of maple sap or for the harvesting of that maple sap. How does climate change impact the maple industry and what can we do about it? Well, climate change um, is, is a very important issue for the maple syrup industry. I mentioned that the uh, sap flows during the freeze-thaw period when the temperatures are below freezing at night and above freezing during the day. Um, and the, the, the maple syrup producers depend upon getting uh, their crop during those four to six weeks approximately when the sap flows and when it freezes by night and thaws during the day. I mean, when you think about that, when those temperatures are going between the t mid-20s and mid-40s, that's, that's a very uh, delicate time of the year. Um, and it can be affected by uh, warm weather occurring or by cold weather, as to, which can prevent the sap from flowing. In 2012, uh, the season I write about in the sugar season, we had the warmest year in history, and we had the warmest March in history. There were 14,000 temperature records broken during that month when the temperatures, uh, which normally would be between the mid-20s and the mid-40s at the beginning of March, got up into the 60s. 70s and 80s, and it didn't freeze for about 10 days to two weeks. Um, as a result, the sap, which usually flows out of the tree like a cool water, was coming out of the trees like jelly. Uh, and David Marvin himself said that it was coming out of his trees like cottage cheese. It just caused the bacteria to, to bloom in the, in the sap because of the heat. So climate change is a very important issue if it brings uh, warm nights in winter. The uh, climate change reports that have been uh, issued uh, by the government through the Global Change Research Program um, have all mentioned the maple, maple syrup industry and how it can be um, adversely affected due to uh, warming winters. Um, one report stated that if current trends of um, uh, emissions of greenhouse gases continue at present rates, by the end of this century, the maple syrup industry could, re could be reduced to a very uh, small band along the northernmost parts of this country, 
um, and uh, be drastically reduced. Is there anything that our listeners can do to help stop the climbing temperatures? Well, I think we all have to be aware that this is a national and an international problem, and we have to accept that there are going to be changes made in order to prevent um, in order to prevent uh, continuing rising temperatures. Um, the new climate change report that came out just a few days ago uh, in, in, the, in early May um, have stated that climate change is already here. So uh, there will be new measures introduced by the government, and it's essential that we try to do something to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere to prevent this warming. One climate change report uh, has stated that if current trends continue, um, the climate of New Hampshire at the end of this century will resemble the climate of North Carolina, and that can be transposed to other parts of the country. This is a national but also an international problem, and we have to accept that uh, changes are going to be made, and we have to advocate for those changes. Professor, why not? Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today to talk about the sugar season as well as some of the other things that you've done. Could you please tell our listeners what your website is and also remind them about some of the other books that you've written? Yes. Um, my website is douglaswynot.com. Um, I describe my books there, Following the Bloom, Across America with the Migratory Beekeepers, also Giant Bluefin, uh, my story about the bluefin tuna fishery in New England, and A Unit of Water, A Unit of Time, Joel White's Last Boat, which is the story of uh, time I spent at a wooden boat, yard, wooden boat building boatyard in Maine, uh, also a country practice about a veterinary clinic uh, in New Hampshire, and then finally my most recent book, The Sugar Season. And also, check out the post-interview article on theorganicview.com for the links that we mentioned and also other information about the maple industry. Well, folks, we're out of time. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.